So excited to have you back here on Lily High on Life. And today we really do have a very extraordinary guest. I'd like to welcome the Member of Parliament for Caulfield, David Southwick. David, welcome. Thank you, Lily. And what a great introduction that was of your regular show. It all starts with attitude, and that's something that I've always believed in, and uh, you can change anything if you have the right attitude. Absolutely. Now, one of the reasons, or one of the many reasons that I wanted to have you on the show is because you and your wife, Haley do so much every day. Your day starts really early, very obviously, the two of you, and Facebook is filled with all the things that you do that should be a month's worth, but it's actually just a day's worth at a time. So I wanted to talk to you and Haley eventually, and what is it? How do you get through that day? And no matter when I see you, because I've seen you late at night, I've come across you early in the morning, you're always smiling, you never complain, you're always bright. Tell me, how do you do it every day? Well, I don't always feel um, like everything's going my way, particularly in politics, but um, my day starts at about 5am every morning and I get alerts come through on my phone of the media of the day and and to Haley's... um, Disappointment that that's, that kind of gets her awake as well. And I go off and start checking everything and do my media, radio stuff that I have to do first thing in the morning. And that tends to set the day in terms of what might happen with my job. And, and then I go about uh, whatever the day may bring. And, and the great thing about what I do now is that every day is a different day. And uh, it's always really, really exciting. It's always learning because I, I love to learn. I love to learn new things. And politics does that. You know, one day you're the shadow spokesperson for energy and the next minute, you know, you're talking about police and, and prisons. So it's very diverse. But um, so it gives you that um, flexibility. And, of course, you know, having a great um, uh, soulmate like Haley to be there along with me to share one another's journey is just so important. Because she, in a completely different context, is just as busy as you are, separate to that, yeah. as well as the kids. So it's go, go, go. So my point also is that if you're a celebrity, people drive you around and then you do your, you know, hello here, hello there, and you do a whole lot of stuff. But you're not, I mean, you are a celebrity, no, but I'm not a celebrity. really, <laughs> but my question to you is you don't just show up and do what you need to do part of your job in doing and showing up is actually following up and everything else how do you um, partly manage it on, on a daily basis but also get it right in your head that you're able to cope with so many different things so one of my biggest weaknesses is to be able to say no. So I'm I'm not very good at saying no and I love good to take to on I love to take on things. So projects, I love projects. Uh, but I also believe that when you you turn up, you just don't show up but you get involved. You roll up your sleeves and you get involved and that's something that uh, was taught by my grandmother, my father. It's just instilled in me in my life. It's the Southwick way. We get involved and we 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 rattle a tin and we raise money for charity. We just don't go and cut a ribbon. And so I've always been very, very um, focused around doing that in everything that I do. And I suppose some of that takes a bit of time, um, and particularly when you're juggling a whole lot of things and as well family. I think one of the things that's been very lucky, particularly in this current job that I do, and it's been coming up, be coming up to 10 years um, next year, 
so in 2020, 10 years of being a Member of Parliament. But the thing about it is when I first started, I had a long discussion with Hayley because I said I was never going to do it without her 100% support because I, f- I felt that it had to be a team effort, not an individual thing. And, and I'm lucky because Hayley does absolutely get involved in sharing a lot of the things that I do and I do in a lot of the things that she does, but also with the kids as well. So unfortunately... Um, because of our kids being immersed in this, particularly my son that's about to turn 18, he is a political animal. He he loves <laughs> politics even more than I. And and so, you know, he and I have really robust discussions and I absolutely would not be surprised if he followed in my footsteps and uh, as much as I'd like him to try other things, he he absolutely has found you know a passion that he really loves and you actually followed in your father's footsteps who he was also in politics and a council member and yeah so my dad absolutely taught me he was a councillor he was and he was out in Werribee and what i loved about my upbringing is i was a mount scopus boy that you know went to school had a lot of jewish friends but on weekends my dad had a factory out in the western suburbs and i would go out in his factory work with him if he had a community function to attend at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten, I was with him. One of the biggest, fondest recollections was we came came around to Christmas time and Dad was doing his usual Santa Claus for the local childcare centres. And I was out there with him and, and he said, son, and I wouldn't have been any older than ten, he said, son, I've double booked myself. Um, get that bag out there, there's a Santa suit, put it on and you're going to be Santa in this other... <laughs> Other childcare centre now. How awesome a Jewish is boy for a from Mount Scopus couldn't know, wouldn't know Jingle Bells. I know it now, and <laughs> um, and I had to, if you like, play Santa at a childcare centre, and and that was brilliant because I got to kind of be immersed in different worlds, and I think that's really really important that we expose our children to a whole range of different things. I'm a strong advocate within our community that we also spend time outside our community because to advocate against. You know, anti-Semitism to hate to you know to, for people to understand what the Jewish community is about. They've got to meet Jews. They've got to they've got to um, understand us. They've got to you know come to our homes and, and and really really get us. And and if you like, that's one of the proud things that I feel again being a member of Parliament is that I've taken a lot of my colleagues on this journey, a physical journey, whether it be to Israel or to home for a Shabbat or just even chats about being Jewish and. You know, I feel really proud that you know my colleagues get me and they get our religion and they get Israel. And for me, that's probably one of the single biggest achievements, um, particularly in this job, is that I've been able to be a really strong advocate uh, and someone very passionate to be able to educate others that haven't had the quite um, understanding about our community and about Israel. And that is so, so very, very important because you need that personal one-on-one. David, tell me a little bit about your relationship with your father, because obviously it was very, very close. It was one where you did follow in his footsteps, and you've instilled that in your son, it looks like. Um, Tell me about... And and my daughter too, absolutely, in a lot of... Yeah. So, um, look, we had the closest of relationships. We really did. I was the oldest uh, child, one of three, and uh, Dad was Dad was a passionate community person. Uh, he was into everything. He was a really uh, really hard worker. One of the things I remember a lot is Dad. You know, spent a lot of time where he wasn't home. Mum really brought us up um, most nights. But 
on a weekend, if it was going to his factory or then going afterwards to the football uh, or, or any of those sort of things, it was that's something Dad and I would do. We would share so much together. And he taught me the values of hard work. He taught me, you know, the fact that, you know, you've, you've got to actually really fight for something that you believe in. And the best thing about it is no matter what we did, and I think this is one of the things that Haley do with our kids, is no matter what our kids do, you know, even if they're, you know, first to um, finishing a, a, a packet of chips, you know, we celebrate <laughs> that and say how good that they've been able to actually being able to achieve whatever it is. We celebrate everything with our kids. We do that a lot on Facebook and a lot of people say, oh, isn't it great that you talk about your kids because we're proud of them. And I think you have to really give the kids confidence to go on. And that's my parents were proud of everything that we did, absolutely everything we did. They never really pressured us into everything. My parents never knew when I had a VC exam. They never said to me, I have to go and study. I did it because, you know, I had to do it. And they gave me the opportunity but they gave me also the responsibility to run my life. And, you know, for me, I, I thought it was the best upbringing that I could ever imagine. I've tried to follow that. Um, and, you know, I've been very lucky, if you like, that I've had somebody that really taught me the really important values and a strong liberal home, which is, you know, that, that goes without saying. But Responsibilities um, taught, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. responsibilities. Um, you know, we had a, like a lot of political debate and stuff like that at home, but, you know, in a good way around the kitchen table. And, and nothing was – there was never no in our family. There was never no. If I wanted to try something, my brother and sister wanted to try something, we would. And and mum and dad would be there. They'd say, yep, no problems. I, I had a market stall at about the age of 12, and my dad would drive me to the South Melbourne market, drop me off and pick me up at the end, and then, you know, to load up all the stock in his car <laughs> – and then I'd be sitting counting all my coins from the from the market stall on Sunday watching some television show, and you know th- that was what we did. You know, like that was that was which a family wasn't thing. normal, like for fourteen year olds to have a, no. their own business, but they just accepted that that's what you came up with and you wanted to do it, and they gave you that freedom. They absolutely did. They <clears throat> absolutely did. Were your parents both born in Australia? Or? We, we we yeah we've very you know long-standing Australian family so you know we go back in the almost convict days in terms of so um, yeah five generations so it's a it's a, it's a um, yeah it's, it's a long-standing Australian family and I think you know that's interesting in many ways you compare that to Haley's family who were Holocaust survivors and I've got to learn a lot about you know what she's experienced and also the difficulties with, with her grandparents and, and what have you um, in coming to a foreign country. So that, that's been an interesting balance for me and an interesting understanding as well. And the other really interesting thing about that is that, in fact, you've kept that sense of Jewish neshama, that Yiddishkeit, because Israel is very, very important to you. It is really important to me, um, but I've got to say it only became truly important, even though I went to Mount Scopus my whole life, um, it only truly became important to me when I went to university. And when I went to university... I was um, I was involved in well well I, I got involved in student politics because we had a and it was out in the west so I was out at Footscray which is now Victoria University again near where my father's factory was and I was probably the only Jew that was out there and I was well, certainly the only liberal that was out there <laughs> and uh, and I was reading horrific things against Israel in the student newspaper so I decided at that point because it was really hit me when I was in a bubble with all of my Jewish friends. You know, you don't see that when you're in a campus with not no Jews around you, and you've got this really attacks on Israel. 
um, in the student newspaper, you want to do something about it. And that's what got me um, motivated and and got me to a point of actually doing something about it. I ran a ticket to take over the student union on a very on three very simple policies. The policies were more beer, more barbecues, and more bands. <laughs> and with the with that, we got seventeen of eighteen positions elected through the more beer, barbecue, and band scenario. And we had the best parties on campus for the next three years. Our students loved us. We brought bands in from everywhere, and we shut down the student newspaper. And we 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 got people to enjoy campus life, not to run a political agenda, which was being done before. That is so awesome. And that was the day way before they started talking about strategic planning or strategy. Yeah, no, you just simple, worked it out yourself. Pretty simple, yeah. Find out what the people want and give it to them. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> simple back then. And. That probably helps today as well. Yeah, you're yeah, probably right. Politics, I think politics has probably become a little bit too complicated. Where, And I think, you know, in fairness, if you have a look at some of the leaders that have been um, successful um, from, you know, Boris Johnson to Trump to ScoMo, you know, like it's getting back to basics of, you know, what are the things that really people are needing, you know, to ensure their life's okay, a job education, you know, the, the very, very basics and how can you deliver that without ad overcomplicating it, which I think sometimes we do. And the other aspect which you have is that entrepreneurial and business, not only spirit, but successful background, because I think that's really important too, um, taking responsibility for bringing in your own income through a business as opposed to being on a job and getting a wage or a salary. So bringing yeah. that into politics yeah, is look, huge. I, absolutely. I think that's that's an, uh, something that I, I am very proud to bring to the parliament. And I think people have to have diverse skills into the parliament. I know we can talk about some of my business I've been involved in later. But, um, but I think particularly that I've always said this, one of the biggest failings of our political system is that we don't have people from diverse backgrounds into our parliament. And I'm a very strong advocate of we should have, you know, doctors, lawyers, teachers, um, radio presenters, <laughs> DJs, whatever it may be, bring them in to be able to give real-life experience about what's happening on the ground so they can give positive contributions and real-life contributions and not have somebody that has just had a political career and can only talk politics and not talk people. Just curious, how did you get into your first business of candle making? Oh, so it was yeah, uh, cosmetics and Co- stuff. So, so the the very first way I got in, involved in that was I was I used to buy and sell stuff at auctions. Um, I called myself a stockbroker, but buying um, <laughs> stock of distressed stock, not actually stocks on the market. And I got hold of some cosmetic bags, and uh, and I went to I went to Priceline. And Priceline purchased all of these cosmetic bags off me. And then I went looking around at auctions for anything I could buy in the toiletries to sell them to Priceline. Found a, uh, a cosmetics manufacturer and then I developed up my own range of, of skincare and toiletries, of which I sold to Kmart, just an idea. Developed your own. I mean, was it a kitchen table thing? It, was literally, it a- was literally, I found a designer that I said, if you know, I get this order, I'll be able to pay you. Would you be able to help work with me? And she said, yep. So we did it all on spec. Um, I went, you know, literally filling other people's bottles into different bottles and packages and putting labels on bottles. And, and, and the focus around this product was, and it was probably 20 years ahead of its time, it was environmental product, very much all about helping the environment. We gave 10% of our profits to environment causes and helping long-term unemployed and wow. homeless youth. back then. So it? it was all cause-related stuff. And we, we, we ended up turning it into a $6 million a year business 
We uh, we provided work for charities. Um, we helped Ardoc, which I became a, in, very involved with that with Ardoc after that. We gave boats away for dolphin research to research in Port Phillip Bay. I employed a lot of homeless and long-term people into a factory in Moorabbin. I ended up having 50 staff. And that was started literally from $500 and, so, and an idea and nothing so more. Th- that is such a phenomenal success story. Walk me through this business of integrating uh, people into the workforce that may not have uh, had other opportunities and also giving 10% or whatever it was to the charities and then going on the board of ADOC. Walk me through it in terms of you're a businessman, you're getting a business going. What place was that was that always a first priority or you started doing things and saw the so, opportunity yeah, so so interesting I, I think you think you've got to have something that's very consistent a strategy that's very consistent with you know a vision and a values of things and for me um ironically i started with the charity and the and the, and the idea first of the course so i i really started interviewing what charities i wanted to get involved in before we even produced the first lot of product so, you know, I knew that I wanted to make a product for young people and I knew that I wanted to help other young people with that product. So that's where I started. And I interviewed Kathy Hilton at the very beginning saying, this is what I want to do and I want to be able to give money to Ardoc. And what do you think? And she said, that'd be great. And I want to give some toiletries to start with and then I'd want to help with some other stuff. We ended up paying the rent for their referral centre and I got involved in the board and we did a whole range of stuff. But, you know, it was... The vision first and understanding what we were going to do. And then when we started producing the product, I said, well, you know, we just can't, we've got to walk the talk. So I want to be able to employ people, not just help in a distant way, but employ people that are finding it tough. David, it sounds like that um, that, that uh, charity part of it was almost as important as the actual business. More important than the business. So I think, and that's why I've ended up in politics, is because for me it wasn't so much the business, but it was the cause, and it was helping people, and and that's why this is a bigger way of me being able to do it through the politics. And it was always, even though I didn't necessarily think I was going to be destined to do this, it was always a natural path that I could pursue. But for me, it was, and and I had business partners, but they kind of they 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 just followed this path that I was on. I was like, this is what we've got to do, and you know. The, the, the funniest story is we were developing up a marine range and again I inter- I, I, I um, interviewed the Dolphin Research Project which is still around Jeff Weir who's the executive director still is 20 years on and Jeff came to me and said yep you know we'd love you to help us I said that's great I said we'll give 10 cents of every product to the Dolphin Research Project so that's brilliant he said but we've got a real problem at the moment we need a boat to do our research and the current boat is a dinghy that we pump up each time and it, <laughs> it, it doesn't survive and we need a real proper boat to do it and I said how much was it and this was probably 20 years ago and he said to me oh it's it's about $25,000 and I said fine we'll get you the boat and I got my credit card and two credit cards and I put the boat on two credit cards <laughs> and we bought the boat before we produced the first product and my and my business partner said, "You are absolutely crazy. What are you doing?" And I said, "We got it. We've got it. We've got to strive for this. And if we don't believe it, we're not going to be successful. And that's got to be the vision. We do this stuff, and we did it, and we were successful because of that. And our staff that were involved were also very, very focused on. And I see the staff today that have gone on that never got a break. That you know were always judged, and we got them in. You know they felt part of a family." 
we had a guy that was coming in mowing the lawns on the weekend and I had no idea how our lawns were being mowed and and I kept asking I came in one weekend and there was Duncan who was our forklift driver borrowed a fo- borrowed a lawnmower to mow the lawns because he wanted pride in his place wow. wasn't paid for it but he did it on his day off and that was kind of the culture that we developed and this was 20 years ago before a lot of this stuff so yeah I probably in that way was a bit ahead of my time in the stuff but I think the problems that we've got today are no different the problems we had yesterday probably even more particularly with our youth and I think that's where we've got some real challenges and that's where particularly me and my focus within the Liberal Party because I think the one thing that we don't get credit for, people say as Liberals we're good economic managers and all the rest of us, but they don't realise that we have a heart and we care. And most of us Liberals have got involved in politics because we have a heart and because we care and not because of the money or because of anything else. And so I think that's where I want to spend my time in the future is being able to do some of the caring stuff, compassionate stuff to make that difference. And here's part of the issue as well, because your story is amazingly inspiring to so many people, and especially that culture of giving back. Now, I personally know some people who are extremely successful businessmen, and they have that culture within their businesses, but they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to let people know about it, because it's something they do from their heart. It's not something they want credit for, but they have that same kind of loyalty and pride from their employees and it's a wonderful place to work and they don't turn yeah. over many people. Yeah, and that's a key. I, I think that, you know, and also particularly that's something that we've been very successful of in the Jewish community as well, you know, that's that's a lot of people base that premise of what they do. So I think that's a really, really important thing. Uh, it needs to be done more. I think for me, I did it. You know, I was very visible in what we did because I wanted people to come on board with me. I wanted to, I wanted to drive almost like a movement. And I felt that if people were buying something, they could be proud that it actually meant something. You know, 20 years ago, we had a website on the front of our cosmetic bottle saying, you know, go and visit the website. And it wasn't selling anything, but it was talking about dolphins in Port Phillip Bay and and um, uh, stillbirth babies, you know, through our, that, that needed, you know, families that needed support from that and, and homeless kids mm. and shelters and all that stuff. That's what we were, that's what we were selling. We were selling the um, helping individuals, not necessarily selling um, toiletries in a, in a cosmetics bottle. Mm. I'm just thinking perhaps the way to solve that a little bit and also share it is to have a website where people who work for companies like yours can go on the website and without even mentioning the company name because the owners don't want to do that just talk about the wonderful conditions they have and some of the great things that that happen um, within their workplace absolutely and I, I think that's again probably one of the issues with the union movement you know like unions used to be all about focusing on helping people which is what they should be doing but you know when we're seeing it almost driving a wedge between employee and employer ultimately to the detriment of a lot of businesses that just can't survive through a whole range of pressures that they deal with, then that's not good for anybody. So, and I, I remember that I used to have, you know, we used to have morning tea and lunch at the side, the front of the factory, a little van would pull up and you'd get your pies and whatever and you'd sit around with the staff and everyone would eat together. The union representative came to me one time when I was doing that and basically said, I want to talk to the staff. And I said, no problems, go for it. And he said, without you. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm just part of the team here. You know, I'm not... And he said, no, no, you can't be here. And eventually I had to leave so he could spend the next hour just saying how bad your boss is. And, um, and my staff didn't want to borrow that and they didn't listen. And, and that ended up leading to the union at that time boycotting our 
um, our product, so we couldn't get our products um, unloaded from Kmart over Christmas, and it was almost going to bankrupt our business until such time as I literally had to pay for a couple of union memberships in my factory to make them go away. So they were not going to um, let go until they got a couple of delegates from the, and that's the way they operated back then. And that's not the way to operate with anybody. You know, like we, our, our staff, we had profit share. We gave 10% of, another 10% of our profits to the staff. I had my accountant come in and actually run through what a balance sheet and everything was to educate our staff so they could understand how to read balance sheets and profit and loss statements. So we were all about helping others. Yeah, you know, we had others you that had had different agendas. That, yeah, so you've got to get that culture out got there to, more. Yeah, it doesn't. And my friend, also, uh, th- this friend that I know, also provides free hot lunches for the staff, like proper chef hot cooked meals and also profit share and stuff yeah, like that. Terrific. So it's a wonderful thing. David, I'm, I get the feeling from you, and I sometimes feel that um, <laughs> I this positivity thing has become part of my way of life so the way and I'm getting a lot of this from you most people have ups and downs and I certainly do but there's always a positive around um, I'm not trying to get anything negative that's happened but does it come as an affront to you when people are negative oh look I can understand look again one of the horrific things in our society at the moment is the amount of depression that's around you know like my father suffered from depression ironically with all of his positivity that he had and he was the life of the party everywhere that he went but when he retired and he retired from business he retired from community life as well he had nothing to fill that gap and so he became a bit of a recluse and it kind of sent him into um, almost like um, well did in a depression state and that was horrible to see such a big man larger than life kind of really um, fall into a shell so that worries me. I've got to say, you know. How and did that? How did you deal with that? How oh, did you it was, cope with again, it? it was horrific. I, you know, cared for him right up until the end, and and it really, really, it really hurt, and it hurts me to this day that he's not here, and and to see that change. And I think a lot of men, particularly men, experience that because they don't have the social circles and they don't have the extracurricular, extracurricular activities outside of work. And, you know, then and, and invariably, in many instances, that kind of neg- negative stuff creeps in. I've always been really, really positive. Uh, and, yeah, things get me down and not certainly nothing always goes your way. But I find ways to kind of just push it back and say, move on. I, I really believe in not having broigus with anybody. You know, I try to kind of, you know, deal with something because I feel like you end up owning it yourself. If you if you if you get angry at others, then you end up the worst owning it. So 100%. I just I just try and fix and settle everything that I possibly can. When I'm feeling just a little bit, you know, stressed, because I do get stressed, there's no question in this job, um, I go and have a swim. And that, and when I've had a swim, and I know my Auntie Rosalie's a big swimmer as well, and um, my dad was too, and, and just getting in the pool, it just kind of takes all of that away. And, you know, try and find some exercise or something just to do, just to take off that stress. And, of course, family also can help as well. But, you know, like you just, you deal with what you deal with. That's a that's a great couple of different ways of relieving stress really fabulous especially knowing that that it works for you but also your first business um as a dj was a fun business you get to party loved it so my dj and that's still what i'm probably the most known for um outside of politics in the community there's not a day goes by when people talk to me about my the djing days and also want me to come and do a guest appearance at some school reunion or what have you um yeah i started that back at 17 again 
it was at Scopus. A lot of my friends were turning 18. They wanted to have parties. Uh, actually, before that, I was working as a waiter at the, um, at the President in Queens Road. And I noticed that there was a DJ there. And while I was running around collecting plates and, and being running around like a maniac, this guy was enjoying a meal and playing some music and just having fun. And I went to him. I said, gee whiz, how do you get... How do you get into that? And he told me, and he said, do you want to come down? And so I went down. After, you know, five or six times volunteering as doing the DJ thing, he said, you now you can go out and do your own party. So, I, and that was Andrew Noble, which was very big at the time. Oh, wow. So I ended up, um, I worked, you know, about, oh, for about three months for him, and then I set up my own thing. And, um, and it was very successful, and I, I DJed for about 20 years, and I did thousands of parties. And I loved, I loved my music. I still love my music. It's something that I, I, I also de-stress from um, in terms of just listening to music. Takes you away into another place. Takes you away. And, um, and I think, you know, music is a really good relief for everybody. I actually DJed at the Grosvenor Hotel down here in Brighton oh, Road really? when yeah, I was yeah, about yeah. 17. Yeah. I know yeah. it was 17 because my mother had too. to drop me off <laughs> and I got picked up. Yeah, I did a few parties. But I did radio training with Lee Murray and he got me that job as yeah. a DJ. It was, it was really, really fun. Yeah. And when you've got that to fall back on, it really, it really is, is a wonderful thing because music can take you away anywhere. And you met your wife at um, one of these parties as well and got to really see what her metal was because... Um, yeah, well, well, actually, it was, actually, it was at her niece's bat mitzvah and she came up and started talking to me at the party and at the end, I was packing up, and she was helping me packing up the speakers and everything. I thought, oh, this is pretty good here. You know, she's, she's helping me. She must be interested. And, of course, uh, because of her niece's bat mitzvah, her father and mother were there as well. And her father could see this interaction between her and I <laughs> and was a little bit concerned that, you know, she's spending too much time with the DJ. So he came over and was helping me pack up as well to get me out the door. Um, and then, meanwhile, you know, Haley's saying, oh, what are you doing afterwards and whatever else. So, yeah, it was from that little... Um, uh, if you like vi- um, meat, that it kind of flourished into a couple of dates, and and our dates because I, every weekend I worked, so Haley would come along to the parties. And funnily enough, I only caught up with some people at a, at, at a, one of the UAA volunteer nights a few nights ago, and they they reminisced with me and they said to me, "We used to remember you at all the parties, and we also remembered Haley there with you. You know, you'd have your little table set to the side, you'd have a meal like it was a date." And you're taking her for a date and then you'd be off doing the party. And she did. She spent a lot of time with me at those parties. And I've got to tell you, you guys still look like you're dating. I mean, when I've <laughs> seen you out and about. Um, I haven't played any of your favourite music because this has been so fascinating. So let's just get one song in at least. Um, Remember and Earth, Wind and Fire.
radio by local people. J-Air, 87.8 FM. And welcome back to Lily High on Life with David Southwick. David, great song. Tell us why that's one of your favourites. Well, it's one of my favourites, uh, September, which is in the, and in the words, it's on the 21st night of September, the four seasons. And that's actually the, the birth date of my son, Ty, our son Tyler. And so every time we hear the song, we just think of, you know, that was our firstborn and, and, um, and it's a party song. And so it does kind of bring back a lot of really good memories. Very cool. Do you remember what it was like when you when he first came out and you first held him for the first time? Oh, yeah, it seemed, seems uh, like so long ago. But, yeah, no, I do. It's, it was a very, very special time. It was interesting because um, obviously the first your first child is, um, is you know, we don't know what to expect and, and it's very, very daunting. It's, you contrast that with the second one with Paige, um, which she's um, two years younger and thirtieth uh, of October, her birthday, and um, and when when Haley was giving birth with Paige, we actually had Parliament on TV, um, <laughs> and I was watching. It was then the Senate, federal Senate, and Rod Kemp was talking about who was the Minister for Sport. Was and I remember seeing his speech. So he was talking about changes to regulations in sport. Um, so I was busy, you know, tuned in, and I wasn't back then. I wasn't actually a politician. Um, but uh, but certainly you know interested if you like it because it was um, yeah. It what was. a wife you've got! <laughs> so she was saying, you know, get that bloody thing off the TV. So there you go. <laughs> um, that's just absolutely gorgeous. And the kids now they're fourteen and 15, 15 and seventeen. 17. So Paige is fifteen, Tyler's seventeen. Tyler's doing his year twelve. Paige year ten. Paige uh, interested in politics too. Um, yeah, look, Paige has certainly been around it, and she understands it. You know. Uh, really, really well. Paige is more interested in the entrepreneurship side, which is really, really good. So, a few years back, she's going to hate me telling you this, but um, we were we were travelling over the Westgate Bridge, and you know, next to the casino, there's this gold building. I still don't know what it is, but it's a, just a gold, big gold building. And she said, "You see that building, Dad?" I said, "Yeah." And she says, "I want one of those when I'm older." I said, oh, "Okay, fair enough." And she said, "Yeah, what do you want for?" And she said, "Well, that will be my business. I'm going to have heaps of staff working for me." Um, and you know they're going to be we're going to be producing something really good. And I said, do you know what? She said, no, I don't know. But I love you know she's that. kind of got this vision already of what she wants to do. So um, every time she does something well, we kind of we, we remind her that you know it's one step closer towards the goal building. So absolutely um, awesome. So you're obviously doing something right. The oh, two you, of we, you. we are an absolute very very close family, and. Um, and, and all of us, and, and even though the kids will fight like all kids do, uh, they've got one another's back, and um, and it's great, and they and they share one another's passion. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, you obviously encourage them which in in a very productive kind of way. Um, I just want to ask you: before you actually became a member of parliament, yeah. uh, you ran twice and you didn't win. What was that like? So not third succeeding. Time, third time lucky. So two thousand and four, I stood against Michael Danby for what was Melbourne Ports back then, and and then in two thousand and six, I stood in the upper house for the southern region. And I lost by only a few hundred votes in out of nine hundred thousand votes because it's a whole region. And then third time was Caulfield. Uh, each time is really, really grueling. It's very hard to actually explain how how um, 
how confronting it is, particularly for the family. And you know, people think, oh, it's great because you know someone will pay you, and you just keep doing what you're doing. You basically stop what you're doing, and for about twelve months, you campaign without any job, and not only without being paid, but you actually then have to fundraise to fund your campaign. So you basically put your life on hold. And luckily, I had some success with my businesses to be able to do that. But you know, twelve months of literally just working day and night hoping that you would be successful and then the result comes out and you lose and then you've got to confront the community um, the next day, the very next day and it's really, really tough, so particularly for the family. Really, really tough. So it's not just dealing with your disappointment, you're dealing with your family's disappointment and the community disappointment as yeah. well but then you go do it again. Yeah, and and, and look, you know, the, the second time was probably for me, the it hurt the most but was the biggest lesson. So in the second time, and I won't mention names, but there was somebody who was quite a formidable opponent that ended up getting up over me. And, you know, he he basically didn't... And we went to the exhibition centre and all the votes were counted over two weeks and it was really close, so no one knew who was going to win. And it was really up to a push of a button on a computer. Anyway, so he hadn't turned up until after the result. I'm standing around, they push up the button, I lose, he wins, he comes into the room... And I had liberal people around me and they said, you don't need to be around this, come on, let's go. And I actually turned to them and said, I do need to be around this. And I shook everybody's hand in the room and I remembered that day as clear as it was yesterday and it hurt as much as I can possibly fathom in terms of just how tough that was. But when I left that room, I said, I'm going to do this again and next time I'm going to win and there will be no no um, ifs or buts in terms of that. So I was really, really determined and I think... That's what gave me the motivation and the drive. When Helen Shardy said that she was going to retire from Caulfield, I literally put my hand up the next day and said, I am going to be Helen's replacement. I rang all of the delegates in Caulfield and I said, I want that seat. And uh, and thankfully, no one challenged me, which is unusual for a relatively safe seat back then. But I think people knew that I was really determined and I had a couple of goes at it and, you know, that, that, that I was the one that was the best suited for the job. We're so glad that you did <laughs> go for it the third time. But... For me, that mindset where you decided it wasn't about how you were feeling, it wasn't about any disappointment, it was about you knowing what you wanted and you knowing what you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and look, I do come back and I think with this job, disappointment, again, I can handle, I think I can. you can handle most things as a politician, you learn to do that. It's very confronting. People will tell you exactly what they think, what they feel. Um, but the difficulty thing is it is very, very visible in everything that you do. And when there, there are, um, there's ups and there's downs. But when there's downs, you know, when things don't necessarily go your way, your family are very, very exposed. And that's, you know, I'm very thankful that they're always been with me, always been supportive and understand, you know, what we're doing and what the what the game is, what the plan is, you know, in terms of the long-term game of, 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 of being elected and doing the different things that we want to achieve. So I'm lucky with that. And it's and it really is just all perspective. Change your attitude, change your life. Absolutely. One of your choices was to hang your head and go back into yep. a cave and get yep. depressed. Yeah. But you made a choice not yep. to do that, and it's about making choices. Just in the few minutes that we've got left, tell me about the things you're currently working on that you're the most excited about. Yeah, there's lots happening. I mean, in the Jewish community specifically, uh, we've had the Achfa thing, which is the anti-Semitic materials that in, in the VCE, and we're, we're calling on the um, the organisation to make a public apology and to ensure that the materials don't um, come, uh, this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And 
James Kennard, the principal of Mount Scope, has been very, very strong on this, and uh, it's been really good working with him on 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 some of the advocacy work. Um, in terms of more broadly, Jewish education in the community is a real issue in terms of affordability of Jewish education. So it's one of the issues that I want to do some more work on and see what we can do in terms of helping around that particular thing, the growing issues around anti-Semitism. There's a lot in terms of community. More broadly, I mean, I've got police and corrections as my areas of responsibility. Real issues around youth crime, it's, it's getting horrific and it goes back to some of the things I used to do, which were spoken about earlier. They're the things that I really want to change. Um, our prisons are completely full. Uh, it costs a, a, a million dollars to build a new bed, $130,000 a year to keep somebody in jail. It's just ridiculous. We need other ways and other solutions, and they're the things that I'm, I'm trying to look at, um, better ways to do things, and particularly in that justice area, in the, in the youth, in, in, in law and order, they're areas that are very, very important to me. And a fair go, and and um, and obviously rebuilding the party to a point where we win the next election in twenty twenty two, which you know that will be my focus. Absolutely. And then you were also telling me when we spoke the other week um, that in terms of immigration, there's an, a really amazing program that Israel has for its immigrants that might be a good idea for us too. Yeah. So again, this has been UIA um, largely led in terms of their absorption centres, particularly with a lot of the African and Ethiopian. Um, immigrants that have come through where they learn the culture they learn um certainly uh things in terms of the language and and even buying things in supermarkets and everything so by the time they actually leave they're job ready and they're they're able to integrate properly into society one of our issues here is we bring people into the country um, but we don't invest in them once they're here so my focus really is around what are we going to do once we get somebody here and we should we should commit from every dollar it is might be bringing them here, investing them when they're here because then we're going to get a lot better results in the long term. And I think a lot of people have come from war-torn countries that have got real complex issues and no one's really tackled that. No one's given them those support and, and, and those ways forward. I know particularly with a lot of... Um, uh, in the African community, a lot of the youth that are kind of uh, have, have, have gone into the the crime stuff, the, the, their parents are completely horrified and don't know how to handle it. They're the kinds of things we've got to do to stop um, us from having a generation of crime um, and hardened criminals in the future. So there's a lot of work to be done around that, and there's some of the areas I'm doing a lot of work in terms of very different ethnic groups. Um, and to, to try and alleviate those issues. I love this state, I love this country, and I love where I live. And that's why I do what I do, and I want to make it the best place for all of us. And really, you can feel the passion. You're here in the studio, 7 o'clock at night, and you can still feel the passion, the energy, and the love for what you do. So as we say, kolakavod, David, and thank you so much for everything that you do and you continue to do. Thank you, Lily.